your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In today's episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show, I sit down with Army Paratrooper, SWAT Commander, government counterterrorism expert, bodyguard to Hollywood celebrities like Sylvester Stallone, two-time Guinness World Record holder, he's been on Ripley's Believe It or Not, and he's been in more life-or-death situations than anyone on the planet. That's earned him the name, the most dangerous man in the world, and he is Mike Gillette. He's the guy you go to when you need the skills to survive any life-or-death situation, and that's what we talk about today. We dive in to the three fatal mistakes almost every victim makes and that you must avoid if you wanna survive, defend, and protect yourself and your loved ones in any situation. Mike is that guy and he makes it simple. He teaches it for ordinary men and women like you and I and boils it down to the true essence. How do you avoid these situations altogether? Where are the common mistakes made when we look back and we deconstruct the times that things have gone wrong? and the times that things have gone right and how do we apply those to the way that we handle these situations and the mindset that we arm ourselves with going into them. So if you guys dig this information and you want more of it, head over to www.reallifedefense.com to check out more on Mike and his programs. That's www.reallifedefense.com, R-E-A-L-L-I-F-E-D-E-F-E-N-S-E.com. And without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Mike Gillette. Hey everyone, I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best-selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. All right, brother. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Really excited to be here. And, and I'm excited to talk about all of your knowledge and wisdom when it comes to life-saving self-defense and, and some of the psychology of acting courageous. But before we even do that, I was, I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago, and they were describing this personal development retreat that she attended. And part of the retreat, they're breaking arrows on their necks in order to kind of rep- represent overcoming limiting beliefs and what we're capable of when our, when our mind and body are aligned. And I came across a Guinness world record video of you taking the world record in most steel tipped arrows simultaneously broken with your neck. That sounds familiar. I, I, I seem to recall that day. <laughs> <laughs> How is this a skill that even gets developed by someone? I mean, my mind was blown watching this. I don't, where do you start? Well, um, most of my bad life choices uh, start in my garage. That, that's just me. Um, <laughs> and everybody says, don't try this at home, but that's where my first aid kit is. So it just seems like a logical place. <laughs> the, um, I started doing uh, the arrow breaking in demo simply because once upon a time, I saw one of those uh, performing groups of Shaolin monks and one of them did that. And I thought, man, that is really interesting. And so I, I gave it a go and uh, it 
didn't kill me. So I kept doing it. And what, uh, now in the world record department actually had two. One is the most, uh, arrows broken in that fashion in 60 seconds. And that's the one that was on the Guinness show. Uh, and then the other one was uh, perhaps the one that you saw, which was the most at one time. And that was free. And uh, that was rough. Um, there's nobody documentedly, that's a word I just made up, um, <laughs> that had done, that I could find anywhere uh, that had done more than one at a time. So doing two uh, is what I typically do in demos. But on that particular day, that was in 2014, I did three. And that was, uh, that was a challenge because it's, it's not just, you know, the, the puncture that you have to worry about. Um, any object like that is, is very strong front to back, you know, if you just press on it. So if you've got three, uh, just the force necessary to, to break it without uh, still pushing it into your throat, you know, you're writing a pretty fine line. Yeah. What, what is, is there a secret to this besides superhuman <laughs> mental strength? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a logical question and, uh, no, uh, well, I, I guess technically the secret is not too slow, not too fast, you know, uh, you know, too, too fast, you know, it's going to go right in too slow. It's, it's not going to break. And, and I do a similar feat with lengths of rebar where I will like bend lengths of rebar with, with the end against the throat and that spot on the throat would refer to as the jugular notch. There's only skin there until you're getting into like, you know, blood vessels in the airway itself. There's no muscle in that spot. There's no cartilage or bone. So it's uh, it's a unique spot. And it's also there's a big uh, nerve cluster there of self-defense instructors will uh, instruct people to press their fingers in straight in and then down because uh, the nerves there are so sensitive. So it's uh, there's all kinds of good reasons not to do it, Anthony. Um but for those of us uh, with that predilection, it's it's a mental thing. I mean, it's not uh, it's not anything else. You know, some some feats of strength are are very much uh, strength intensive, and some are just simply a, a question of what you're willing to endure just to test yourself. Well, I was thoroughly impressed, and I think it's safe to say that you have some physical and psychological barriers to entry. If anyone wants to take your uh, record. <laughs> uh yeah I, I i think there's um if anybody who wants to take it or is successful i want to hang out with them because they're obviously my kind of guy or girl <laughs> yeah yeah mike so you have you have a really interesting background army paratrooper swat commander uh government counterterrorism expert you were bodyguard you worked with sylvester salone what, when did you start becoming the guy that people went to when they needed someone to protect them or when they needed someone to, to teach them how to protect themselves? The, um, the, the road to becoming that guy was, was, it was a long road and it was a road that I was on for a long time before I realized that that was, that was what the road was. Uh, in, in one of my books, mind boss, I, I kind of write about that, you know, sort of the, 
I, I was moving for a long time in a particular direction, and I, it was kind of like you get to the top of a mountain and you think you're going to see down into the valley of, of revelation and, and clarity, and it's like, damn, there's just more mountains. But it felt like you know you were still moving in the right direction. That's kind of how it was for me. The, the military time, uh, the police time, uh, were they were formative in terms of, of teaching me how to deal with certain things, but it wasn't until I got into law enforcement that uh, by happenstance, I found myself very early on in a instructor training course that uh, I found myself really having an interest in training and, and teaching others. And I also liked uh, the burden of responsibility that came with being a trainer or a certified instructor in something, you know, it just, it kind of put the onus on you to, to know that material better than anyone else. And some part of me liked that. And I realized that I, what I wanted to do was to teach others. And there were very few opportunities within law enforcement to do that. And I reasoned that the only way I could get myself to that point is to just you know, be the, the baddest trainer around. And that simply means the guy who has gone to the most schools. So if my agency wasn't sending me to schools, I was sending myself. I was spending my own money, burning up my own vacation. And I was building this sort of Frankenstein-like resume that was way bigger than it had to be for my day job. But uh, such was my, uh, my interest. So uh, I just kept stacking on to that. And what that led to was more trips further and further away from my day job uh, as my expertise grew. And in 2001, I left law enforcement uh, after a 12-year stint to become a full-time trainer. And then it was just more world events and fortuitous timing that kind of you know propelled me forward. Uh, 9-11 was a a, a big thing uh, for some of us in the in the training room. I ended up doing more work in the airline industry post nine eleven than anyone else, and that led to other work, which led to other work. And the the bodyguard thing was five years of that was sort of an accidental thing. It was uh, the result of training relationships that uh, you know I sort of walked into that world. And, and that's a that's an unusual world uh, to get into. It's kind of an invitation only thing. There are no, uh, you know, there's no monster.com for that. And it's it's more based on, you know, you, you know, people, you've proven yourself in some capacity. And you also have to have all of these intangibles to be successful in that realm. You have to be able to blend into the background. You have to be able to you know, navigate you know, ultra formal circumstances, ultra austere circumstances, depending on where the, the client is, is traveling to, uh, lots of unexpected circumstances, problem solving, thinking on your feet, going long times without sleep, without food, uh, all of those kinds of things. It's, it's uniquely challenging, but I was uniquely ready to leave it uh, when I did. A few of my friends who have been in law enforcement and worked with certain high-level government agencies, one of their complaints is that they've had the type of personality, probably similar to you, where they are in it for the action. And once once they've been awarded or rewarded with the role, they don't see as much action as they'd hoped for. Was that part of your experience in law enforcement? And, and, and did that play into you deciding to go another direction with things? 
Well, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I relished being involved in law enforcement. When I say being involved, I guess that that's my term for, you know, being active and, and solving problems and, you know, and, and saving the day as it were. Uh, that was very meaningful for me, but I felt as though I would have more reach. I would have more impact on the profession if I had more time to train other people, you know, mm-hmm. to make them better prepared so that they would be safer, their communities would be safer. And, you know, weirdly, even bad guys are safer. You know, the more skillful you are, you know, the, the quicker you can shut down a problem, everybody wins, even the bad guy. So it, it's kind of a, you know, it, it's a benevolent, almost samurai-like approach to the job. You want to be as dangerous and as capable as possible so that you don't have to be dangerous uh, and capable a lot. Well, uh, maybe capable is the wrong word, but you know, the idea of just really being effective and being effective fast. And um, while I, I took a lot from satisfaction-wise from policing my own little community, um, it, it was kind of a, a weird duality uh, for me because I was working you know, in this small agency in the middle of no place special, and then I would go train m- members of the Dallas PD. And then I would come back you know, to this small place, and then I would leave, and I would go train you know, cops from Chicago. Um, so... I, I did the math and I realized that, you know, the more that I can engage with the world at large, you know, the more impact I'm going to have. And I had cultivated a lot of very interesting expertise and I had sort of my own experiential and perceptual filters that I had processed all of that through. And I, I really felt as though that I had something to contribute. So it was that as far as breaking away from law enforcement, leaving the bodyguard realm was more of a uh, decision to fast track um, reaching the rest of the world, so to speak. I had uh, towards the end of that run, I had released one of my one of my products that had done pretty well, and um, and that being really adept in business, I kind of thought that that revenue was going to be a little bit more uh, ongoing. So I said, well, you know, look at me. I think this is the time. I've got books to write, DVDs to make, and lectures to give, and, you know, arrows to break. Um, you know, I, th- I think this is the time. So uh, I pulled the plug on what was a very good job and uh, just basically start, started from scratch as a kind of non-denominational, uh, you know, teacher of tactical truths. Uh, but not specifically looking to only teach military personnel and law enforcement and the like. So it was um, throughout my sort of professional career, I've always been moving in this direction, consciously or unconsciously, to to reach more people. You know, to share information that can you know make them better and braver. Beautiful. And in all of your life experience. Do you see a lot of the problems when, when people go into, when there's an attack or a mugging or someone's life is threatened in any way, do a lot of the problems that transpire come about because that person is ill-prepared physically, ill-prepared psychologically, or both? Um, I would say both. And, and here's an interesting uh, you know, point to that, is that um, lots of, you now 
when, when we say violence or attack, you know, people don't know if you and I are talking about terrorists or they're just talking about, you know, some thug on the street. So let's say that we're just talking about some thug on the street, which is a, a different animal. Uh, and I'm not referring to people as animals. That's just sort of a, a, an analogy. So there are people who fight off bad guys every day that have zero training meaning that they don't intellectually know what to do. They've never like learned ninja moves. Okay. They just very aggressively do whatever they can in that moment to repel the efforts of an attacker. And in fact, most criminals who I guess we could call a criminal, a professional bad guy, most professional bad guys are not formally trained. Mm -hmm. You know, even if they are more like knockout artists, as opposed to stick-up artists, they basically will just walk up to somebody and just smack them over the head. You know, that's not a technique per se. It works. Um, so it's any, whether you're a bad guy, you know, smacking somebody over the head, or you're a good guy smacking a bad guy over the head, and neither of you have had training, what's the one thing that is constant in, in that scenario? It's, it's the willingness. It's, it's the, the mental fortitude uh, to to engage in something that's that's very unpleasant and scary to engage in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first and foremost is always that. If you have the willingness to do, uh, you're miles ahead of the um, the dojo black belt who's never really been tested and is, you know, in, in his quiet moments still quite fearful. If it that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. It reminds me of how you see some fighters in the ring or the octagon and like they'll 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 take a shot that would have put just about any other mortal on his back and then you see them and it's like it's like a light turns on and all of a sudden they're coming forward like you know, like yeah. Frankenstein to use the analogy that you mentioned yeah. earlier. And it, it's almost like this person has so much training that they rewired their nervous system to get hit. And actually that's what like turns them on. And then they, they, they activate this killer instinct within them. Whereas almost everybody else would either go down or shell up and retreat. Is this something that can be developed? Uh, it absolutely can be developed. And it's an interesting, um, you know, I've, I've seen it in, in its two uh, means of manifestation. And in that, um, you know, uh, with me, it was, it's a completely trained thing. It's not innate. Uh, that was not uh, part of my, you know, upbringing or my experience, you know, as a young person. So I had to build it. But uh, I've certainly met my share of, I refer to them as sharks, you know, just you look in their face and they've, they've got one mode, you know, forward and aggressive. And it's just, it's innate. It's just them. And, um, I think the, you know, for me, uh, and the average person who you know, has to cultivate the cultivate over time, it's, um, it, I, I refer to the process when I'm teaching this as a situational personality. Because the, um, you know, we don't want to be completely wound all the time. Uh, sometimes we read newspaper accounts of, of the people who are wound up all the time. They make bad decisions. You know, they're, they're, if you're amped up all the time, if you're just, you know, in, you know, in threat level, you know, triple X or whatever, uh, it's, it's no way to live. 
I mean, you know, every you know quality of life goes away. You you end up just oh, what was that? You know, you're you're just you're tight and you're tense, and that sucks. Anybody who knows me well would probably describe me as one of the most laid back guys they've ever met, um, and that's a that's a process. And it's, it's a process of becoming comfortable with uncomfortable topics and being willing to confront, uh, you know, confrontation, if you will, uh, being willing to engage. And once you have, have that as, as part of you, and it's not that you don't, um, you know, you haven't overcome fear in that you're fearless. It's just that you're willing to do what needs to be done. And that's an important part of the equation, too, Anthony, is what needs to be done. Uh, I'm willing to engage in violence that needs to be done. I'm not willing to engage in violence that is silly or therapeutic in the moment, which means that, um, you know, I have been called a lot of names over the years. You know, in my cop days, you know, one, one might imagine uh, the words that are, you know, thrown uh, in the direction of, of our law enforcement. Um, that stuff, it's like, I'm immune to it. I almost don't hear it. It has zip effect on me. Um, but many, uh, uh, a weekend, uh, will, will see a county jail fill up with guys who don't have that skill, mm-hmm. who can't let things go, you know, who just like, wait, he called me a what? He said this about that. You know, he looked at me wrong and they're off to the races, you know, and they're just making one bad decision after the next. So it, it's an interesting thing. If you're com- if you can become comfortable uh, and, and comfortable is just willing. comfortable is not like, Oh, this is no big deal because it's a big deal. You can get hurt. Other people get hurt. It's dangerous. It's a big deal. It's grown up stuff. But if you're comfortable with the idea of it, um, there's something that almost gets communicated in that. Um, I don't, you know, people don't challenge me on this. Well, of course I don't go to stupid places, but if, if I'm in difficult places, difficult neighborhoods, convenience stores in the middle of the night, because I'm, you know, I'm traveling back late from somewhere. Um, I, and I'm an old guy, comparatively speaking, you know, to the average street kid. And I'm a small guy, you know, five, nine, one eighty something, uh, normally. Uh, so I'm, I'm very statistically average, but there's, I think there's just sort of uh, a sense that uh, you know we, we communicate how we feel about a lot of things. You can tell if somebody's having a good day. You can tell if somebody looks kind of like a bully. And if they look like a bully, they tend to get challenged. There's, there's just something, you know, all, almost subliminal that comes out, you know, in their tone of voice and their mannerisms and their posture that makes people want to challenge it. So if I'm hearing you right, what, what you're hearing, it's almost, it's like insecurity is literally seeping out of their pores. So there's like this sweet spot where you don't want to come across as a victim or afraid. And you also don't want to come across yeah. as a, a bully um, where yeah. you're just, you're just waiting for someone to test you. But if in between, if, if you're aware of your surroundings, if you're willing to make yourself uh, a difficult victim, if someone attacks you, like yeah. you're, you're going to make the, the job of the, uh, of the assailant challenging a lot harder than somebody else. Um, yeah. you're at least psychologically preparing yourself to minimize the chances of, of an attack. And if one does come, you're going to do whatever it takes to put a stop to it. Very well said. 
Yeah, your your job is not to be the you know the baddest guy on the block. You're because that that's a pretty big job. And yeah, some people can can rise to that occasion, but not many. Mm-hmm. Uh, your job as a as a regular person navigating life, understanding that the, you know there is at least the potential of violence out there. Your job is to make anyone who would you know consider bringing violence to you that that would you would make that the worst day they could ever possibly have. I like and it. that's which, which is different than the psychological burden of winning. You know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. I'm going to beat that guy or I'm going to kick their ass. Um, maybe. But mm-hmm. let me tell you something. If you get if you get attacked and you weren't prepared for it and, and you survive to live another day, that's a win. Mm-hmm. That is an absolute win. You know, particularly, you know, if, if you're older or you're smaller or, you know, you're a female or whatever, you know, if you, if you responded in that situation, the way that you wanted to respond, which is simply um, you didn't you didn't go willingly, you know, in, into that good night. You you fought back. You did not accept what was being thrust upon you and you fought back. You know, there's honor in that. There's you can live with yourself. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not going to second guess yourself, you know, for year after year after the fact. Now, they may have still gotten the better of you, but, you know, what we're looking for is the best, is the most positive outcome of a woefully negative circumstance. Mm-hmm. All right. I like it. And, and we're going to draw from your experience and what you've seen in analyzing thousands of different scenarios and being in them yourself. And we're going to kind of hack it down to three fatal mistakes that almost every victim makes when the outcome isn't favorable. If someone's attacked, whether it's a thug on the street or a different situation, there are three mistakes that you see happen very frequently that if, if someone listening just avoided these mistakes they'd have a much higher chance of leaving with their life and, and winning, um, as we say. Right, right. That, that's a, a great way to put that, Anthony. Uh, so in, in this sort of, uh, let's call this just sort of like a, a biohacker mini course on, uh, on street awareness. And the first of which is understanding that you know, the things that uh, I'm, I'm going to share right now really have to do with how you're processing your environment and how you're processing what's taking place within that environment. Because you know, self-defense is ultimately a thinking person's game. You know, the, the oblivious person is going to have difficulty. You know, the attentive person is going to be much better off. And the first thing is uh, is probably you know, the, the biggest obstacle, psychologically speaking, for people to overcome. And I refer to that as don't do this. Don't rationalize the irrational. And what that means is don't try to make sense out of that which doesn't make sense. If you're being confronted by somebody, the, the typical person mentally is going to try to figure out why this isn't something horrible. It's, it's just how, how we're sort of wired on because that's, that's how we navigate through life. If we were terrified by every strange noise, we would drive ourselves crazy. So the first thing we do when we hear a strange noise is try to look through the mental Rolodex and figure out the, the logical things that that noise could have been other than a UFO full of aggressive space aliens. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
if somebody just comes up to you on the street uh, in, in an aggressive fashion, your mind typically will start scanning through possible explanations, i.e., you, know, you will try to rationalize this incident in your own mind, even if it's an irrational or unusual circumstance. When you so, say rationalize, oh, do you mean like most people try to downplay it and, and actually like yes. like interpret it as something that it isn't? Like, oh, this actually isn't someone trying to attack me. And consequently, right. they put themselves behind the eight ball. And now they're in a lot more trouble than if they just took it at face value and said, this person shouldn't be this close to me or they shouldn't be yes. behaving this way. I need to yeah. I need to be ready. That's that's completely it. The um, if if I come up to you and uh, I'm 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 standing closer than what is is comfortable and I seem very agitated and a lot of people initially are going to well you know maybe he's lost maybe his car broke down maybe he's having a bad day you know all all of these you know things that might make this seem plausible as opposed to this guy could be a threat. You know, we're so civilized, Anthony, that um, we really worry in many cases about, and this is particularly problematic for females dealing with unknown males, um, we're sort of, you know, culturally expected to be polite and deferential, and uh, there's nothing wrong with being civilized, but there's nothing wrong with protecting yourself and, you know, and taking things, you know, as they are rather than how we would like them to be. And it's... I mean, you're talking about overriding a protective mechanism of the brain. You know, our, our, our mind on some level is trying to keep us calm. It's just going about it in the wrong way. It's mm -hmm. trying to keep us calm by playing down a potential threat, uh, even when a potential threat may be right there right now. So if, if it seems dangerous or it feels uncomfortable, you know, you got to act on that. Uh, if somebody's coming up to you quickly, and one of the things that um, in, in, in video instruction, I do live workshops, is I will have people practice establishing verbal boundaries. Uh, hold up. Hey, man, I don't know you. You know, think things like that. Just little cues that if anyone else is around, A, you might be drawing attention, and B, you're giving a reason why you're asking this person to stay the hell back. Mm-hmm. So a yeah. big one, that's, that's where, where I was headed, was what are some of those triggers where our, you know, our brain should be saying, this is not normal. This is not safe. Is it, is there, um, cause I would, I would imagine it's much different on the streets of New York versus on the streets of Nebraska, um, where okay. you can't, you can't necessarily say, Hey, anyone within five feet is a potential threat. Yeah, yeah. If you're on, if you're in Times right. square, it's different. So what do you look for? Right. Yeah. So, uh, and that, that's a great example of, you know, life is contact. And in Nebraska and Manhattan, you know, that, that's a different context. However, even in Manhattan, where people are kind of on top of each other, they're typically on top of each other in a very disinterested way. It's when people are focused on you. And that's when you pay attention. And when people are focused on you for reasons that don't really make sense within the context of what's happening right now. So if, if once somebody has obvious is moving on you because they're they're looking at you, they're talking to you, and they've got no apparent reason to, uh, you need to be cautious about that. You don't need to necessarily be polite. You don't have to. You don't want to escalate the circumstance, which is why even in the context of tr you know trying to establish you know some boundary, you know, and and you can step back 
you know, as long as you're not stepping straight back, but, you know, you can kind of step off an angle. What I refer to as, you know, step away at three or nine o'clock so that you can see if anybody's behind you because they may have a friend um, as, as you're suggesting to them, Hey, just you know, hold up right there, man. What's going on? So you're saying you if know, someone's approaching uh, you, from, you need? from the front, you want to yeah. almost pivot so that you know if someone is also approaching you from behind. Yeah, and and you can do that in a you know non obvious way. You know, so I mean, mm-hmm. you're not just like jumping into some big karate stance and you know um, it, it feeling silly. And just in case it is innocent, but it's reasonable to not want to have unknown people get too close to you. That that's not an unreasonable thing, and. Just saying that to people is like, oh, really? I can I can ask people not to get too close to me, and I'll say, yeah, absolutely. Just say, hey, man, that 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 makes me a bit uncomfortable. How how about we conduct business uh, from right here, wherever here happens to be? Mm-hmm. Um, in my top days, I was always very um, conversational. I mean, you, you you get to a point where you can tell if you know somebody you know wishes you harm and. And they're, they're trying to move on you in such a way uh, to, you know, perpetuate that harm. But the whole time that's going on, you know, I will, I will say to them, uh, how about you stand right there? That, that way uh, you don't make me jump in. I don't make any bad decisions, you know, and I, I would kind of put it back on myself. Or I'd say, I noticed you're staring at my throat. Is that because you want to punch me or because you want to choke me? <laughs> and, and it was kind of like, whoa, how, how does he know? And it's, and it's because unless you're highly trained, uh, people instinctively look where, the, where they're going to attack. Mm. You know, so if, so if somebody is, you know, glowering in your face and they suddenly drop their gaze to your crotch, you know, be expecting something. Uh, in the case of cops, it's very frequent that for people to just have an eye fixation on the pistol, you know, on the side on. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, if you keep staring at my, my holster, it makes me think that you want to take my gun and shoot me with it. I don't think that would be good. You know, I, w- I would just say things like that. And, and you're, you're uh, saying this when they're still at a distance where they couldn't make physical contact with you. Yeah. Because, I mean, if, if, they're phys- you know, if, if they're physically attempting to take my gun away, I know statistically that means they want to kill me. And we're, 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 we've bypassed the conversation phase, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, polite time is over and the fight is on. But so, at the point that we're still kind of, you know, separated by even a tiny bit of geography, um, I can, I can, I used to engage people in that way in, in the bodyguard realm where you've got a lot more responsibility and a lot less authority, uh, your communication skills would have to come into play as, as well. And you would just, I would just talk to people and it's like, um, I noticed you've been standing by that door for a long time. Um, we've, uh, we, we've got some important people in the area. Uh, I kind of get the impression maybe, you know, that. Is it that you want to meet them or you want to blow yourself up? What's going on? And I, I would just talk to people and it kind of like, okay, I, I guess, I guess they've been discovered and you know, they're going to, you know, they're either, you know, going to, you know, fill the room full of F bombs and, and come at me now because the jig is up or I might find out that they're just kind of a, you know, a harmless stalker type that just wants an autograph or, or whatever. All right. This but is, this is good. Willingness to engage. 
Okay. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, three things that I'm taking away. One, awareness has to be high, probably much higher than anyone who's walking around on their cell phone is able to achieve. Mm-hmm. They need, you need, you need to be willing to kind of probe. And that doesn't have to be you just sitting there cognitively figuring out a situation. If someone's approaching you, you should get verbal before they're even in a chance to make, they even get a chance to make physical contact and say, Hey, you know, I don't yeah. know you. What's, what are your intentions? Da, 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 da. Keep back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then number three is psychologically, no matter what, whether you feel safe, whether you feel engaged, you have to go into a situation with a willingness to engage and kind of um, to quote a Bruce Willis movie, be willing to die hard. Like if someone's going to take me out, it's, I'm going to be the worst fucking victim they've ever had to deal with. And, and it's going to be a hell of a night for them. <laughs> I just, I just bit, uh, high fived you, uh, virtually. Uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, before we, uh, we leave that second one, cause that I, I like how, how you, uh, summarize that. That's, that's excellent. If, if you're going to verbally engage with someone, you know, that isn't, uh, you know, what are you looking at or, or anything like that? You know, don't, you don't need to challenge somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you can ask a question, uh, it, because bad guys do this all the time. Uh, even guys with, you know, eighth grade educations are, are, can be extremely astute students of, of human psychology. If, if somebody's approaching you, always ask a question. You know, hey, what's up? Or, or what's your name? something like that. And the reason that we do that is not only um, there's, there's a message that we send when we engage with somebody verbally, and that is an apparent comfort. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you're not intimidated because you're not sounding intimidated. And number two, a question immediately makes their brain uh, distracted for, for a split second. You mm-hmm. can't, you can't have somebody ask you a question that your brain isn't immediately answering. It's like if I said, Anthony, how old are you? I mean, your brain is immediately searching for that answer, even though that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's always, you know, just a, you know, Hey, what's up? You know, what's your name? And how much of this, here? how much of this is also trusting your gut instinct? Like when we're aware and we see someone coming towards us. We have a pretty good idea if their if, if 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 their intention is to do us harm or if their intention is to just approach us. Or are you saying because so many people try to rationalize irrational situations, it's hard to trust that gut instinct? Yeah, so many people wait and let other people take the initiative, mm-hmm. and that that's um, that's not only a problem in terms of well, I'm just gonna see what this guy does. Uh, I'm going to see how close he gets to me. I'm going to see what he wants to say to me. Um, nope. You don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, you, you initiate as much of the interaction, you, you control as much of the parameters of that exchange as you possibly can. Now we're not talking about anything particularly complicated. We're just talking about say something to somebody, mm-hmm. you know, a pay attention, B say something. You know, yep. If you see something, say something. It's what y'all hear at the airport, right? Piped in over and over. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, just say something. You know, it reminds that. 
And, and what you're probably going to do is push that problem further on down the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're, we, you're just more work than someone who will put their head down and become yeah. an easy victim. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for somebody that's all up in their cell phone with their earbuds on and, and just not paying attention to anything. Mm-hmm. It, it's, you know, that, that is, it, it, it's, it's interesting because like keeping that distance is, is so important. And like, you know, a, a couple hours ago, I was stopping at Walgreens and there was a guy pretty much right where I was parking my Jeep. And he said, hi, when I got out, I said, hello. He was still there when I came back. I had a feeling he was probably going to ask for some money. I gave him a buck or mm-hmm. two. He pointed out that there was a screw in my tire, but at no point did I feel any at all threatened. He was also sitting down on the yeah. curb, right? So he would have had to, yeah. if, if he was going to threaten me in, in some way, he probably would have stood up. Um, mm-hmm. and, and on the other side of the coin, almost the exact same situation. My mom and I were coming out of a Chinese restaurant in downtown Chicago and a guy stood up and started coming towards us real fast, probably also homeless. And mm-hmm. it could have also been in part because I was with my mom, but I was telling my mom, get in the car now. And my mom's like tough Greek woman. So she like immediately puts her yeah. keys in between her knuckles. Like she's got a weapon and she's like, I'm not going in the car. Like she wants to fight this dude. And I'm, like, yeah. I'm like, mom, you get in the car. So at least there's only one of us. And then I told the guy and I'm like, stop right there. I'm like, I don't know you. Like, if you keep coming toward me like that, you're going to get fucked up. And he was just yeah. like, Whoa, he immediately stopped. And I don't know what his intention was, but it's not like, I, I think that's the only person I've ever said that to, but something in the way that he approached and probably yeah. combined with the fact that I was with my mom through, through, a red flag up in the air. And you're saying like, don't let them close the distance, keep it, be verbal and assert for yourself, like take responsibility for the way that things play out. And if someone can put hands on you, you let them get to a point where they could put hands on you. Even if it started with the decision to throw in earbuds and listen, listen to your phone. Yeah. The, uh, uh, great story. I love that. And one of the things that, uh, that points out is we tend to be more vigilant when we recognize that we, we are the, the dominant party, uh, in a circumstance. So uh-huh. if it's you and your mom, you, you just internally, you, you don't even have to think about it. You know, that if anything were to happen, uh, of, of a criminal or an accidental nature, you would be the person that would have to sort that out. You know, you would be the protector. That was, that was your role. And it makes it much easier to kind of slide in uh, to what's necessary in that circumstance, which is paying attention and, and really being analytical when it comes to, you know, picking apart what it is that I'm seeing in this person who's approaching us. You know, now, uh, I'm sure that I'm not unlike some of your listeners and we're interested in how that might have gone if you just would have let, let your mom, you know, just turn her loose and you know, carve up the guy, but, uh, sounds like he handled it the right way. Um, but your mom sounds awesome. The, um, when we are, uh, and, and there's an interesting thing too. Um, and it's, uh, and when I talk to women, this, this is a real issue. Uh, some people have a, have a difficult time kind of getting over that mental hurdle of, I just don't know if I could do X, Y, or Z, uh, if I was attacked. And I would say, um, do you have kids? Do you have, uh, do you have parents? Maybe they're a little older. What if, what if you're the, you're the most able-bodied person in that equation? Oh, well, that's different. I, I jacked that guy up. And it's like, mm. it's, it's almost amazing how fast they can make that switch. 
if they don't have to think, you know, we, we process the fear and the circumstances in a completely different way. If we're thinking about us as the responsible party, as the protector, quote unquote, you know, which is uh, just, I, I think just, you know, thousands of years of, uh, of living in, in that way. You know, when, when we have to protect somebody, you know, we, we can do that. And, and the decisions become a lot clearer and less ambiguous. We don't rationalize the same things. I, I think that even women tend to be a bit more uh, proactive if it's just them and perhaps a child or two that they're responsible for. So that, that was an interesting point. I just wanted to uh, amplify that a little bit. I like that. And it sounds like it almost goes deeper where we're, we're starting to get into beliefs and like affirmations about yourself, where if you believe that, that if you have a mentality that you look out for the people you love in your life, family members, friends, and that is, and that is a part of who you are when you go out with those people, whether when you're all at, at gatherings in public places, you're going to respond very differently than someone who has never had that thought, let alone repeated that thought to themselves over and over and over again, and instilled this belief like, I am the protector, I take care of the people I yeah. love, and, um, and that is my responsibility. Yeah, yeah. If, if you'll uh, indulge me a moment, in, uh, in my early post-9-11 uh, training life, I was working heavily with the airline industry. And that was you know, a response to what happened in 9-11. And that was, uh, was pretty grievous. And before the planes even crashed, what was happening in the aircraft with, uh, you know, bad guys slitting the throats of flight attendants and so forth to, you know, gain compliance, pretty horrible stuff. And uh, as I was, you know, building this training and, and beta testing this training, um, I had uh, this group of flight attendants that I was working with that had volunteered to go through this uh, program. And uh, a couple, and every one of them had friends who had died that day, and every one of them had been flying subsequent to nine eleven, terrified, absolutely terrified, because in those days, even though you know it wasn't that long ago and, and hard to think back, in those days, everyone was convinced that more of the same was was coming, and it was just a matter of time, and, and there was just sort of this this dread collectively that everybody was internalizing. Now, when I was uh, imparting, you know, the, the techniques uh, to these flight attendants, um, you know, they're smart and, and they were motivated and they wanted to learn. But I, I just noticed that as a group, they were still terrified because mm -hmm. in their mind, they were, you know, confronting and reconfronting, you know, these, these boogeyman images of, of people who might, you know, uh, try to kill them. And I said, um, you know, at one point I just said, how dead is dead? And everybody just kind of looks at me and I said, how dead is dead? You know, and, well, um, dead. No one had any idea where I was going with that. I said, look, um, I know every one of you is brave. I know that I know exactly what training you've gone through. I know that you've uh, done mock evacuations. You've been in these, you know, training uh, cabins when they've been pumped full of uh, artificial smoke, you know, simulating an onboard fire and all of these things. And every one of you can, can navigate through that. Every one of you can get through that. Yeah, it's, it's scary and unpleasant, but you've all 
done it and you do it every year, you go through, you know, your research training and so forth. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And they're wondering what the point is. I said, how dead is dead? I said, look, there's there's no difference between you know between a fire at thirty five thousand feet and a terrorist at thirty five thousand feet. They can both kill you. You've you've been trained for both situations, so let's you know let's let's solve this. Let's let's handle it. And then they made the connection. This is you know a terrorist is nothing more than a fire. It's it's dangerous, potentially life ending, but also potentially manageable potentially and if you can put this stuff in the right box it becomes a lot easier to deal with and, and i think anthony that you know our super civilized society you know in just in the last couple of decades where we've gone from uh you know kids who might get in fights at playgrounds and and then you know just have to put their head down on their desk for 10 minutes to those same kids being expelled uh, you know, because of zero tolerance policies for violence, you know, we've, we've kind of cocooned everyone to the point where violence is so inherently shocking to us that we just, we can't even fathom that it has any sort of satisfactory resolution and we can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And that, and I think that's kind of where we are now. So it's not only do we not really have you know, the expertise, because, you know, once upon a time, you know, if you're a boy, you probably wrestled, your, your dad probably, you know, bought you one of those, you know, junior and pop boxing glove sets that came with the little boxing gloves and the big boxing gloves. And I mean, <laughs> you were at least taught to not only throw a punch, but also to take a punch. And we don't have a real take a punch culture now. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a safe space culture. And and I understand it. I mean, it comes from a, a place of compassion. Um, but the way that you protect yourself from bad things is not hiding from bad things. It's making yourself strong enough to deal with bad things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's, that's what I hope to be able to bring to people. It, it's funny that transition, like it, it's happened over the past couple of generations, but I even saw vast differences with my own dad and my generation, like my dad grew up fighting and it uh-huh. was, it was a big part of his childhood, probably largely uh, prompted by the fact that he was, you know, five, five, eight, smaller Italian guy, had a lot of people mess with him, probably had a, you know, a smaller complex. And, um, and, and, you know, when you talked about the therapeutic side of fighting, he probably engaged in that a lot. Someone would say something to piss right. him off. It felt good to put him in their place. Um, but even when I was growing up playing soccer, I remember there was a game where there was like some high school kids on the sidelines saying all sorts of inappropriate shit that shouldn't have been said around women and screaming and talking trash. And after the game, we were all leaving and I was, I don't know, I was maybe 14 or 15 or something like that. And these kids were following us, still popping off. And my dad just lost it, turned around, grabbed like two of them and started beating them with an umbrella. And I was like, shocked. And in my mind, all I saw was there's no way that this should be happening. You know, like it was, it was yeah. the, the most embarrassing, worst thing I could have imagined. And it wasn't even a big deal to my dad. You know, my mom and I flipped out on him and he's like, what do you mean? Those kids were saying, you know, they're cursing in front of your mother. They're making sexual comments. They're saying this, they should have got beaten an hour ago. 
He's like, I was giving yeah. him the benefit of the doubt. And as we're leaving and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like today you think about that happening and like, he probably would be in jail. It, it, it's, oh, and, and, I'm, and I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. It's just, it's, it's a very, it's a vast, uh, cavern that's been created between generations yeah. and like how we look at fighting and the severity of it. Even if like there, there are some people that need to, to get their ass whooped. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I love the way that you tell that story because, you know, the perspective, Hey, I should have done this an hour ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I was literally being compassionate by waiting until now to beat them with an umbrella. <laughs> and I'm in his mind that, that I can see that making sense. And I, you know, I'm a little older than you. So like in, in my youth, um, yeah, it's, if somebody said something wrong, they had to be punched and no one got arrested and no one got sued. And, you know, it, it literally, you know, the social order was never in peril. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've moved, you know, far, far away from that. And again, as, as you point out, one is not necessarily correct and one is not necessarily incorrect. It's just, we have to recognize the world in which we live and the world in which we live is there are a lot less guys like your dad, you know, that, um, we're almost kind of like the safety cones of society Mm -hmm. because when I was a kid, um, not only was there no controversy about is spanking wrong. Okay. No one ever, ever asked that question except like kids like me who got in trouble. Um, so you know, seven and eight year olds were wondering, but no adults were. And in fact, if I was out of line as a kid, the expectation was if there was a neighbor adult who saw it, they would spank me. Mm-hmm. It's like literally if, I mean, and it was almost like an unspoken rule. You know, the, the adults of the world just sort of that whole, it, it takes a village to spank a kid, I guess, in that case. But um, there, there was a, you know, and that's probably more an example of how connected neighborhoods used to be and, and, and before society got really mobile and so forth and, and a lot more disconnected. But the, I still think that it, it points us to the fact that, you know, touching people uh, you know, physically, that's just, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a lost thing. It's, it's, it has been relegated to, you know, the barbaric criminal. It's not something that good people do. Mm-hmm. And, um, sometimes good people have to, and, you know, the, uh, and, you know, a lot of people will like to say things like, well, you know, violence never solved anything. Those people have never been in a situation where violence, you know, will solve something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> violence solves things all the time. It, it's how things get done in the world. And it, it, it sounds unpleasant to say that, but it's, you know, to say anything else is, is kind of, you know, sort of a, a, you know, Zen idyllic comment that doesn't reflect this universe. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can, you can either be willing or you have to be willing to accept that you are going to be at the mercy of everybody and everything, which is not a really, um, satisfying way to live because what happens is you, you start becoming afraid of everything. And, you know, there are some situations that you just can't sue your way out of. 
Yeah. And you look at, you look at life as like something that's happening to you rather than, you know, you're empowered, you're the creator. You can at any moment make a decision that will, that will have a butterfly effect on the series of events that transpire after that decision is made versus you're, you're constantly reacting to things that are being done to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, great point. Um, so anyway, I think I only got through my, my, my first point. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to get on the stick. So let, let me jump ahead to, to the next one, if that's okay. Yeah. So to recap secret number one, don't rationalize irrational situations, be the protector, be yeah. okay with the worst case scenario and uh, heighten your awareness. What's uh, what's yeah. secret number two? Yeah. And, and we got into a lot of other good things with that, that uh, I think are very valuable. Um, it, number two is uh, listening to the bad guy. And what I simply mean is that um, bad guys understand what you want to hear in, uh, in a bad guy circumstance. So bad guys will say what, what you want to hear. And that's oftentimes like, hey, if you just do this, um, I won't hurt you. You know, mm-hmm. just do this. Nobody gets hurt. Now, they may be telling the truth. But the, the thing that you need to understand is bad guys lie better than anybody. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, for them, it's probably been more of a survival tool than anything else. You know, they just have to be able to manipulate people uh, as best they can, you know, day in, day out. Um, and if you take what they're saying at face value, and again, you know, this is, uh, you're encountering somebody for reasons that you don't quite understand, but you know, your threat radar is up. You need to continue to be vigilant, to be attentive and not just assume that what they're saying is true. You have to literally second guess everything that they say and everything they do. Um, and understand that if they're, Hey, Hey man, I don't want to hurt you. No, I'm not, I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that, but are they continuing to get close to you? Why? Understand, it's very easy to lie with your mouth, but it's difficult to lie with your body. So if there's anything about their physical cues that are not lining up with what they're saying, believe the body. The body's what's going to hurt you. So most of the, the time, body tends, what are yeah, they trying to get the you to do? Like, true. Are they trying to let you get close to them? Are they trying to get you to get in a car? Like what scenario do you see well, scenarios do you see most often that you shouldn't go along with? Yeah. Well, the, uh, well, when I say don't believe the bad guy, uh, it's, it's really, it, it's twofold. First off it's, yeah, just be, be aware that they may be lying to you about what it is. A, like say, if, if I'm holding you a, a knife to your throat, and I'm saying, hey, I don't want to hurt you. Well, what's, what's wrong with this picture? Because you've got a knife. You're holding it to my throat. I'm skeptical that you don't want to hurt me. So there, there's that. And it's also just to get in the, in the appropriate context of scrutinize everything that this guy says. Okay. Uh, from... My car broke down. Can I use your phone? You know, back back when people would come to your door to try to use a phone because phones were something in a house, uh, or I I 
I'm looking for my uh, I'm looking for my kid. We're in the parking lot of Walmart, say. Oh well, that's that's a that's a plausible thing. Um, you know the um, uh, if if I have my arm in a sling because it makes me look vulnerable. You know, it's like I may be lying to you with a prop. Mm. The don't believe the bad guy is really about understanding that bad guys use ruses all the, all of the time just to get close. Okay. You know, if, uh, if it's a female and I'm a bad guy and, and they're coming out of the grocery store and they've got, you know, a number of grocery sacks. Oh, Hey, let me help you with that. Okay. Am I really helpful or am I just trying to get close? Am I trying to get close enough to, you know, stuff you in my car or I'm going to jump into yours. So anything that anyone says, I mean, once you, uh, Go back to your your example when you were with your mother. Okay, the first thing you did was kind of assess how he was moving and just some sort of vibe you were getting. But whatever he said, you would have to apply some scrutiny to. Now, is what he's saying real? Is it true? Might he be trying to conceal his in- intentions? That's that's the important thing is to understand that you know this is this is kind of a high stakes poker, and he might be bluffing with whatever it is that he said. Okay. So secret number two, don't listen to the bad guy. This could be their body language. This could be something nonverbal, like they're, they're using a prop, like uh, a sling to make themselves look vulnerable. So you need to be thinking ahead as to the potential consequences of believing them, whether it's verbal or not. Yeah. And also, too, you need to be able to uh, put on your perceptual filters because sometimes they will not only will they come up to you fast, they will start talking very fast. And the reason that they're doing that is they are just overloading your brain. It's just they're, they're going to overwhelm your cognitive process, you know, for, for a brief moment because it, it's effective. Uh, you know, people who are like uh, short change artists uh, will come up to a cashier in a business and not only are they're, they're you know, visually, physically and, and audibly overwhelming them. They give them weird denominations. They ask for strange denominations back and then they start asking questions and then they start moving around. Then another person who's also in on it, you know, creates some sort of distractions like there's all of this stuff to process and. By the time that the person at the cash register has made change, they don't. They know something seems off, but it's easy to rationalize it because they were so overstimulated with stuff to sort out mentally. So don't let yourself get oversaturated mentally, uh, because that that's another uh, common ruse for bad guys. So is that is that something that? meditation helps with are there daily practices or or types of training that you recommend for people to to become like better adjusted to high stress stimulus um well yes and no uh there's yes certainly we can make a focused practice of being better at uh just simply being in the moment, if I can use that phrase, that, that kind of ties into your meditation example. But if we just go into situations with a, uh, a fundamental understanding of something, and this is going to sound very inelegant, 
uh, and unsophisticated. But when I would train police officers, particularly when I was training them on the midnight shift, which was you know, tends to be any jurisdiction the most interesting, uh, because that's when the people who live in that world come out, I would say, look, everybody you encounter is lying. Mm. The victims and, and the suspects, everybody's lying. Nobody tells the police the truth, uh, if at all possible. So you just need to be like coming up with alternative versions of whatever they're saying as they're saying it, because mm. you, you've got to figure out what, what is, what are you missing from this picture? What do you need to understand that you're not getting? And it's just, if you can go into a situation where if, if Gillette's told you, Hey, everybody's lying. Okay. That, that allows you to be one step further ahead. Now it's still complicated because you still have to, you know, filter through a whole bunch of stuff. But if you're accepting everything at face value, uh, you're, you're slower, uh, to respond. You're not in the moment because you will allow yourself to be kind of, you know, overburdened with extraneous information. Now, this is such a complicated way to describe some things that can happen very quickly and very brutally, but it's, it's the way that we have to, uh, to explain it. Yeah. Do you have, do you have a story or an example that comes to mind when, when someone listened to the bad guy and, uh, shouldn't have? Well, the, um, I, of my own stories, I have uh, I have a couple that kind of relate to the first point. It's sort of the second point, and that is, um, you know, everybody I used to encounter, you know, bad guys on the street, were they lying? Yes, they were, uh, which leads us to uh, my previous statement. But um, they would feign compliance, and you know the fight would never really start until it was obvious that they were under arrest and and this is sort of a universal truth for for police officers so um i have a million stories i can't even sort out as far as you know people lying and acting like they're they're going to uh, you know cooperate and do what they're supposed to do and then try to kill you um uh, that it just happens a lot but uh, i can tell you in my very early days that I, I was susceptible to being overstimulated or being captured uh, by the moment or captured by the wrong thing. So here's an example of being captured by the moment. Um, and this one is actually in, uh, in my book, Mind Boss, because uh, in, in my first year, I could still remember all of the mistakes I made. Uh, as I had more experience, the, the stuff just sort of all kind of blended together. In this case, I was responding after a very slow night uh, to a suicide in progress. I was like five minutes from clocking out, and 911 call comes in, and uh, he's got a knife. Uh, he's, he's threatening himself. He's threatening the baby. Uh, okay, that, that's all I hear, and I'm the first guy to arrive. I get to the house. Everybody's outside of the house. Uh, they're, they're freaking out. There's... Um, a, a baby there's a, a woman he's in the basement he's in the basement uh i i think he's going to kill himself okay but no one else is in the basement now okay fine so so now i'm i'm descending into this basement you know pitch black big basement lots of uh, room dividers and just weird stuff stacked up in odd ways very very hard to see and uh, all i know is that there's a crazy guy with a knife in the basement so i'm proceeding accordingly as I as I turn one corner and then the next, I finally uh, 
turn finally, and then he's like right in front of me, just dead in front of me, maybe three feet away. Okay, it's like we're close enough to touch arms. And my flashlight lights up his, his upper torso to include his head. And I notice in that moment that he has cut his own throat. And that is the first time I had ever seen a throat that had been cut that was attached to somebody who was still alive and standing right in front of me. And I don't know how long I sort of stared at the throat, which was, you know, it was a grim wound. And I, I just started analyzing the wound. Huh. So that's what a cutthroat looks like. These are the thoughts going through my head, Anthony. Huh. I, I would have expected there to be more blood. Huh. <laughs> looks really painful. I mean, these thoughts are literally going through my head when what had been going through my head prior to bumping into this guy was, where's the guy? Where's his weapon? Where's the guy? Where's the weapon? Well, I'd solved the where's the guy thing, but I had gotten so transfixed momentarily on his injury that I stopped thinking about maybe for a second and a half. It felt a lot longer. Uh, and that's when I looked down and noticed that knife was right in his hand. And I looked at his hand. He looked at me looking at his hand. And the fight was on. So um, I lost the initiative in that moment because I, I just allowed myself to kind of get so caught up in something that had nothing to do with anything in that moment. Now, it had something to do with something after I got him in handcuffs and, you know, we could get him medical attention and so forth. But my first order of business was keeping myself safe. And part of keeping I myself safe. Yeah. So I got, I got sucked into the uh, you know the injury so here, here's one other anecdote of that sometimes circumstances put us in a, in a place where we are behind the decision chain one or two steps so random incident i'm going to denny's it's like 3 30 in the morning i'm sent there because somebody has passed out in a booth and you don't get to sleep at denny's okay so in that circumstance, am I responding to a disturbance? No. Am I res responding to an armed robbery? No. I'm just responding to somebody whose crime was falling asleep in a booth at Denny's. So that, that was my first mistake, was not kind of remembering, you know, big picture. So I go into Denny's, you know, it's, it's the after bar rush, so it's packed, everybody's eating, and it's not hard to find the guy who's asleep on, on the booth. So I walk over to him and I'm there to do what? To help him out, maybe wake him up, call him a cab because he's obviously not going to drive from there. And I'm in kind of this benevolent mindset in that moment. So I lean over him. I kind of reach down, touch his shoulder. And I say, hey, hey, bud. And his eyes open. And I watch his eyes open. I'm very close to his eyes when they open. And they opened. Then there's the recognition that it is a uniformed police officer standing over him. And he immediately brings his hand up onto the table and grabs a fork and tries to stab me with it. Whoa. Okay. Now, and of course, you know, the ensuing fight was pretty freaking hilarious if you were a patron of Denny's because it, you know, it was just chaos as we went flipping over tables and everything else, you know, trying to get this guy under control. Now, every time I had in any midnight shift cop, that's not an unusual circumstance. You know, hey, go get this passed out guy from my bar, from my restaurant, from wherever. Um, and every time after that, what would I do? 
I, I would approach the subject, I would clear all of the killing utensils from the table, and then I would wake them up. Because I, I knew from experience that, hey, even if you're trying to help somebody out, they may not see it that way, and they just may want to kill you. So okay. that, that, was, uh, that was a moment where my own preconceptions about what the situation was put me two steps behind in the decision chain. It really hadn't occurred to me that this guy might try to kill me when I'm just trying to help him. So like with the first scenario, the guy that had, had cut his throat. Yeah. I'm listening to the story and I'm thinking through everybody is lying and walking upon that scenario and thinking, you know, like, Oh, what if, you know, what if he didn't really slit his throat? What if he, or what if he did, but he's not dead? Um, yeah. and it kind of comes across as being, uh, anticipating, anticipating a, yeah. a worst case scenario until you know you're safe. And then like similar with right. the Denny's, like anticipating, you know, being a step or two ahead, you're like, okay, let me, let me clear out some of these weapons and, um, and then, and then I'll address this guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's the. And again, these were, uh, these were mistakes I made very early on and happily lived through all of them. But um, in, obviously, I'm not trying to portray myself as like, you know, some super cool guy that, you know, never, never had any uh, <laughs> stupid moments uh, because I had my share. The, uh, but what's important about those moments is to understand you can even be trained and still kind of get caught up in normal stuff that, that catches up a lot of people. So, yeah, the way that we uh, solve for that issue is steps ahead, steps ahead. You know, life is chess, and how many steps ahead can we be thinking? And the better we are at life, the more steps ahead we can be. And the more experience I had uh, and the more expertise I developed, you know, my, my chess strategies became a lot more sophisticated. And, uh, you know, I kind of became known as the guy that you know, never got hurt. Now, I mean, even when I was rolling across tables at Denny's, I somehow uh, was very resilient, never got hurt badly. But it's just I got to the point where I was very adept at reading the room and, and figuring things out. And uh, that's that's how you want you want to be that guy. You want to be the guy that doesn't have to fight everybody in the room. You want to be more preemptive and predictive. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. So don't, not only don't listen to the bad guy, but you're, you're thinking about worst case scenario. How do I avoid that? How do I protect myself from that and staying and an anticipating a few steps ahead of uh, the opposition? Yeah. Now here's why people, I, I think this is why people don't want to do that. And, uh, and this is sort of uh, is an example of one of the questions that I get a lot. And that is, if I learn all that stuff, Mike, won't that just make me paranoid? Mm. And in, these are p people who typically don't know me well because I would say, geez, do I seem paranoid? I'm, I'm pretty relaxed. Mm. Um, but people who don't know me just assume that I'm, I'm crazy and I obsess about you know, ninjas falling from the sky and all that sort of thing. Whereas you know, once you kind of, it's like anything else, once you buy the fire extinguisher, you kind of relax about the fire in your home because mm. you've got a plan for that. 
You know, once, once you get the flood insurance, you know, you don't sweat that so much. It's we're, we're, we're solving problems ahead of time. When you know what to do, you can kind of let a lot of uh, normal anxiety just kind of dissipate. And that that's, that's what this is all about. But I think the average person believes that if I open the door on interpersonal violence, I may never come back. Oh, it will forever change me. Now, that part, they're correct. It will forever change you, but not in a negative way, not the way that you expect. It is a liberating thing. You know, it's a quality of life move for a person to, you know, accept certain grown-up facts about the world and how some people are and have a plan for dealing with them. And then just like, okay, I'm, I've got a plan for that. Now I'm going to go back living my awesome life. I, I agree. And I think you and I talked about this when on our first conversation um, offline, and we were discussing how many guys try to avoid fighting, violence, any sort of altercation, and, and consequently have this background anxiety, like, if something were to happen, I don't even know how to physically assert myself. And yeah, and, and that's running, you know, as, as men, a big part of our role is provider and protector. And mm-hmm. if in the back of our mind, we're always assessing, oh, I hope everything stays rainbows and butterflies, because if it doesn't, I have no fucking idea what to do. That's, yeah. that's really a, a source of chronic stress that is very much impacting our state and, and uh, our mindset. Uh, yeah, I, I think you've, uh, you've opened a, a real big door there. I, I think that's huge. And I, I think it's prevalent. And again, it's why this, this has become, uh, just because of sort of, you know, the, the, the ebb and flow of our culture, this has become such a problematic topic. It's so inherently frightening that we just, we don't deal with it. And because we don't deal with it, if we're ever confronted with it, uh, the potential for making, you know, horrible decisions, overreactive type decisions. I mean, the potential for that is astronomical. Uh, you know, people just will absolutely freak out and, you know, kind of metaphorically burn the house down because they don't know what else to do. And uh, that's that's no way to live. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's interesting. One of the first things I'll do uh, and I use I use the women examples a lot in this conversation uh, simply because if if we're talking about guys not being culturally uh programmed you know for this stuff women much less so and if you can successfully get a woman to confront these things because women are vulnerable in ways that men are not so i mean like they're the risk factors that they walk around with are are, are pretty high magnitude um so one of the first things that, that I'll do like in a workshop setting is uh, I'll hit them. Now, I've, I only hit them after I've shown them how not to get hit and how to protect themselves from, you know, from being hit. And I'm talking about like with, you know, big puffy gloves on. But, you know, I'm still a guy and I look kind of crazy and women uh, are not accustomed to being hit. And then they find out, oh, OK, so that's so that's what that's like. Okay, and then I push him down on the ground. Now, that's after I've taught him how to fall and, you know, the floor is matted. But, you know, I do things to them uh, that would have hours earlier just seemed sort of insurmountable. You know, because we don't, uh, we don't, 
remove fear surgically, we, we make the person, you know, capable in the face of fear. And, you know, if we can do that for women, we can do that for men. Uh, it's, it's just so, I hate to use cliche terms, but it's empowering, Anthony. It really is. And that's, you know, that, that is my hope for this. And, and one of the, uh, one of the interesting discussions that I had when we were uh, putting together this, this most recent, you know, video course is, um, because I put out material like this in the past, but it's well in the past. And the things that I've, I've put out more recently have had nothing to do with self-defense specifically, although, you know, they, they touch on, you know, self-improvement and empowerment and, you know, just kind of the better efficacy, uh, since I'm on a, on a roll with making up words of, of people. And when we were talking about doing this, one of my first comments was, I don't want to do it if we're going to market it with, you know, with fear tactics. Because much of the content uh, on the topic of self-defense is sold, you know, by just scaring the hell out of people. And I hate that. It's, mm -hmm. it's the wrong thing. I mean, you have to be aware. You can't be oblivious, you know, to reality. But, you know, the, the idea of making everybody feel paranoid is not something I'm comfortable with. You know, so we, we had some very you know, specific conversations about that. And it's, it's for the reasons that you and I are, are sort of illuminating in, in this conversation is if, if we relegate self-defense, you know, to this, this little box of, of dark, scary things, uh, nobody wants to open that box. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we need, we need to, to look at it in an entirely different context. And, you know, which is, you know, life skill. This is like learning how to, you know, exercise more efficiently, get more sleep. This is stuff that will make life better. You mm -hmm. know, it won't make life scarier. It, it's, it's the opposite. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the vaccine where you get a little bit of, of the unpleasantness so that your body can, you know, learn how to deal with the unpleasantness. And then the big unpleasantness, you know, is manageable because it, it doesn't manifest. Yeah. Now, yeah, totally. now, now you've got me making vaccine analogies. I think that's the first time I've done that. <laughs> oh, this is be the whole biohacker thing. <laughs> this is great. I like it. And I, and I mean, you brought up some really interesting stuff. And I was, I was talking about this with uh, a buddy who's a neuroscientist. And he was like, we were discussing how the whole uh, fight or flight analogy is a bit of a misnomer. Like most people are right. fight, fight or freeze. <laughs> and like, yeah, it's like, yeah. We're either deer in headlights and, uh, or, you know, or, or, or we're almost immediately going into throwing, throwing punches or, um, fighting back. And like, you're saying there are by, by training for the worst case scenario and practicing anticipation and staying engaged in the moment, you can train yourself to not fall into that freeze component and, um, right. and, and actually like, even through visualization, it sounds like like the, the book of the samurai, the Hagakura, they used to talk about dying every day and like actually visualizing yeah. the worst case scenario happening yeah. to you because then it freed you psychologically to fight and be present because it's like no, nothing could happen that you hadn't already anticipated. And there's something right in that. And I think to try yeah, to avoid that, we're saying, no, I would rather stress myself out chronically by wondering what if or, 
being ill prepared rather than putting in a little bit of work anticipation and training in a safe environment so that I can feel no matter what happens, I am prepared. Great analogy. Uh, I, I like that. And, and again, it, it gets back to the theme of we, we need to build greater capacity, not higher walls. Now, those are metaphorical walls, but the, we need to strengthen the individual, you know, and not, you know, barricade the individual, you know, from potential problems. You know, it's uh, the, the, the die every day thing. Uh, my wife is away right now. Um, she's training for, a, 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 she's transitioned from one employer to another. She's an EMS pilot. And uh, she's uh, going through some, some night flight training this week. And she just completed uh, what they call EPs, which is, you know, shorthand for emergency procedures. And in a helicopter, uh, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you lose power. And so what they do is they, they practice how to land a helicopter when there's no engine. And you're talking about an aircraft that's not really built to fly like an airplane is. A helicopter is built to crash. And um, what, what you have to do to be a helicopter pilot is confront death. You, in your training, and, and you have to revisit it on a, on a recurring basis, is practice uh, potentially dying. Because they do cut the engine. And you do have to do the maneuvers. You know, basically the same circumstances you would if the engine had, had just died uh, with, without warning. And what you get is a pilot that can handle that because they have, through, through the appropriate training, prepared that individual to, you know, confront death and not freak out. So, it, you know, we do this in so many contexts. You know, we, we teach five-year-olds fire drills. Okay, dead is dead. You know, dying in a in a school building would be pretty horrible. You know, and and those are five year olds. Okay, we're we're talking about real world stuff. If we can sort of demystify violence and, and take you know the power away from it and make it a little bit more relatable and impersonal, you know, like the house fire, uh, I I think we'll be uh, doing ourselves a real favor. Beautiful. So secret number one, don't rationalize irrational situations. Secret number two, don't listen to the bad guy. What's secret? Number secret three? number three is, is the simplest of all and the easiest to remember. Don't go to crime scene B. Don't go to crime scene B. Well, what's crime scene B? Well, uh, the really complicated bad crimes have more than one location. Oftentimes, you know, there's crime scene A. That's where you encounter the bad guy, crime scene B, that's where the really horrible stuff that they, you know, turn into a, a miniseries happens. You know, that, that's where the bodies get disemboweled. That's, you know, where, you know, females are attacked in unspeakable ways. You don't go anywhere with a bad guy. If a bad guy tries to compel you to move from one location to another, you have to start fighting for your life right now. You don't go anywhere else. It means horrible things if they're trying to get you to go somewhere, even if they're very persuasive, if they seem very calm. Hey, I don't, I'm not want to shoot you with this gun. I'm just, you know, I just want you to come with me. Well, no, 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 no. You don't go anywhere. You have to assume the worst. And, 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 and now that's, it's a, it's a low probability circumstance. You know, we're taking 
a low probability circumstance, which is A, being attacked, and there's a lesser probability of the kind of premeditated attack where they want to take you to another location, but you'd never go to the other location. That's crime scene B. We don't go there. Okay. And I would imagine that by not letting them get close enough to make physical contact helps, but in, in the scenario you mentioned, if they have a gun, um, what do you do? <laughs> uh, oh, if I had an easy answer for that question, Anthony, um, if they have a gun and they're really close and they're trying to get you to go someplace else, your job is to not let them shoot you. Your job is to try to get the gun away. Your job is to make them make a shot that goes into the ground or up in the air, which attracts attention. We're talking about really horrible contingencies now. You know, a gun, a knife, that's, that's bad. And yet, there are people who have had no training that have gotten themselves out of that situation simply by virtue of their overwhelming commitment not to die there or not to die horribly someplace else. And they were willing to fight even potentially to the death, not to die on the terms of the bad guy. Now that that's a, that's a really difficult uh, win or a difficult definition of winning to wrap one's head around. But um, you know, if, if somebody is, is going to, uh, try to get me from point A to point B and I don't have any other external means to fall back on, I'm going to be the, you know, the biggest problem that they could have imagined. I'm going to, I'm going to give them something to remember me by. So yeah, the, the presence of weapons makes things, I mean, if we're just talking, uh, and don't have the benefit of, of visuals and showing examples, it's a really, uh, it's all, it's very complicated to talk about and I can't issue any proclamations that would be, you know, reasonable or responsible other than you have to look at a situation like that and make some decisions and the decisions need to reflect the severity of a, a lethal weapon being present. And you can't do anything about a lethal weapon from a distance. The odds are that the bad guy will, you know, hopefully use that weapon as a psychological instrument to, you know, compel you to go one place or the other. And if they're very close to you, well, then you get your hands on the gun. Uh, people have, have disarmed other people, you know, for years and years. You know, bad guys disarm cops and cops have special holsters to make that really hard to do. Cops are trained in techniques to not let that happen. And yet it can still happen. So mm -hmm. against an untrained person, you know, probably with no holster, you know, you, you've got a fighting chance. You know, it's just more about the decisions you make and your, your commitment to, to follow through on those decisions than, you know, any sort of specific tactic or skill. Nice. And tell me a little bit about real life self-defense. Real life self-defense uh, is um, years in the making in that uh, it took a really long time for me to get to where I am now with respect to the subject matter, just in terms of, you know, uh, perspective and uh, my ability to communicate that perspective. So it's, it's trying to occupy a particular space in the information uh, world, and that is to speak to people who have probably never trained, you know, 
no martial arts uh, free week of classes in their history. They did not, you know, grow up boxing at the YMCA. Um, you know, they didn't wrestle in high school. It's for people who have, you know, perhaps never, you know, never thrown a hand in anger or even in recreation. So the techniques are very, very simple to start with. And the techniques are provided with the necessary context for those techniques. So all of the whens and whys and hows are there along with the, you know, the questions for, you know, for the viewer, you know, you, what's going to take for you to do this in, in real life? What are, what are sort of the, the realities that you need to confront so that you can confront those now, you know, in, in your own mind so that you, just like we've been talking, so, so that all of these skills would be accessible to you under the, you know, duress of an attack. So that's sort of the, the philosophical uh, framework or, or approach of the material and it's designed, again, for people who have had no previous training. Now, some people have looked at the material who are very advanced or are actually trainers themselves, and they, they say, hey, I picked this up and that up. It was good stuff. Um, yeah, they already knew how to you know, smack somebody in the face, but that wasn't why they got the material. They, they were looking for some of the less tangible uh, informational aspects. So there's there's a, a big chunk of, of material that I call non-denominational. It's not part of any one martial art. It's not martial arts at all because it's, it's far too primitive uh, to qualify as martial arts. It's not pretty enough to be martial arts. And then there are some specific uh, topic breakdowns. So there's a, a presentation that is completely geared just for women, and that comes with the main package. And that's even you know further uh, dialed in for what, what females have to protect themselves from and some things that they can do that are, are horribly effective uh, when, when done to bad guys and, uh, and done from some you know, positional points of reference that you know, kind of uh, simulate uh, what might uh, occur in, in, a, in a sexual assault, which is you know, the thing that women have to deal with you know, above and beyond you know, just being clobbered over the head. Then there are some specialty topics such as what about like knives or any other sort of edged weapons? And there's, there's a, a standalone piece on that. And then there are some breakdowns of how do you protect your kids against the potential abductions? Uh, what would you do in an active shooter situation? Uh, how do you, uh, in some of the things that we were talking about in terms of establishing, you know, verbal boundaries and dealing with people, you know, you don't know what, what, what their aim is yet. They're just unknown. There, there's a, a separate video just on that. And then there's a, another video on uh, self-defense weapons for, for women. And even for, uh, you know, maybe guys like you or I that might uh, be out with friends and we've got a friend that's potentially going to get himself in a dopey situation, maybe because, you know, we're in a bar and, you know, somebody said something or there was a girl or I can't back down now. And there's actually some, some ways of intervening in those sort of um, vague situations, you know, before they have a chance to turn into, you know, something dangerous or, uh, you know, litigious. So it's, it's kind of how to solve for the entire spectrum of, of conflict, assuming that you have no weapons you have no special training, you have no special abilities. And, you know, we're, we're building capability uh, 
inside of regular people that that's really kind of the, the end goal, you know? So if, if it's, you know, if you have a listener right now and, and, you know, they work out all the time and maybe they do some jujitsu, um, their ability to be effective with this material would, would be phenomenal because they're bringing a lot to the table, but you don't have to have that in your back pocket to make this stuff work. Obviously the, 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 uh, the more advanced of a human you happen to be, the more effective you can make it. But this will work for anybody, ordinary men and women. It doesn't matter if they don't have any training, if they just want to know how to handle a situation. If, if the worst occurs to them or their family, this is, that's why you've created this course. Yeah, it's, I mean, if you were going to, if you didn't know anything and you wanted to know everything and, you know, uh, I could come over and, and sit in your living room and answer every question you ever had and show you everything you might possibly need, given where you were at ability wise. Beautiful. So reallifedefense.com. We're going to put a link in the show notes that will uh, hook you guys up and uh, make sure that you're able to check this course out and really go deeper on some of this, some of this knowledge that is as fundamental as any survival skill. Um, Mike, this is, this has been awesome, man. Thank you for your time and hanging out. I've, I've enjoyed it. Likewise, a lot of fun and uh, hope your listeners uh, got, got something from this. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that they had to, your questions were phenomenal. Your observations were spot on. This was a really enjoyable conversation. Thanks brother. Appreciate you hanging out and uh, talk soon. All right, biohackers, super excited to share this one with you guys, especially those of you who live in parts of the world where maybe you don't get as much sun as you like, or even if you just have a modern lifestyle that doesn't allow you to get as much sun as you like. Maybe you wake up in your box, you eat your box cereal. Hopefully you guys are, are past that. You get in your box with four wheels under it, you drive and you work all day in your box, and before you know it, you haven't gotten any sun. And we know that that photonic energy from the sun is critical to everything for from energy production to mood, mental fatigue, and especially for those those of us that have dealt with seasonal affective disorder, that's kind of like where your mood drops during the winter months, I suggest that you pick up the human charger. I've used this for a few years, and what's really cool about it is it was invented in Finland, and the research on this device has been around since the 1980s. It's effectively working by shedding light into the light-sensitive regions of the brain that are responsible for energy levels and mood and mental alertness, and it can help reduce the effects of jet lag. There's studies showing that this is effective against seasonal affective disorder. It actually increases motor speed in athletes, and it does all of that without suppressing the melatonin production that clears toxins from our brain and helps us get a good deep night's sleep, right? So that's really cool. I use it for about 12 minutes a day. I used to use it religiously when I was in Chicago, and now that I've moved to move to Delray and have much more access to sunlight. I use it uh, a little bit less frequently, more on a as-needed basis, and I keep it in the rotation for when I travel to prevent jet lag. You can learn more about the Human Charger at humancharger.com. Be sure to use coupon code BIOHACKS to save 20% on your order. Again, you can go check it out at humancharger.com. That's H-U-M-A-N-C-H-A-R-G-E-R.com and use coupon code BIOHACKS, B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S when purchasing to save 20% on your order.